0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. We are, dis- we are in conversation with Professor Leela Fernandez. Leela Fernandez is a political scientist who has written widely about inequality and change. She has taught for three decades at the University of Michigan as a professor of women's studies, Rutgers University, the University of Washington, and Oberlin College. Professor Fernandez has also written extensively at the intersection of labor and gender, and one of her early works, Producing Workers, the Politics of Gender, Class, and Culture in the Calcutta Jute Mill remains a critical ethnographic account of the changing patterns of labor in the wake of economic liberalization in India. She has also published numerous books and articles on the praxis and discourse of feminism and class, both in the US and India. Today, we are going to talk about a very different, equally important work entitled, Governing Water in India, Inequality, Reform and the State. Published by the University of Washington Press Press in 2022, the book is a brilliant and topical intervention on bureaucracy and its complex connections with hydraulic justice in the face of ecological precarity in India. Welcome, Professor Fernandez, to New, New Books Network, and thank you for making time for this chat. Thank you for having me. Um, so, to start us off, uh, could you tell us what got you to work on water and water infrastructure in India? Uh, why is it important to pay heed to the governance of water in India?
1: sure i'm happy to um you know as you mentioned you know most of my scholarship has focused on inequality questions of social justice and and transformation um and for the, about the past 25 to 30 years i focused um on the effects of economic liberalization uh, that have been intensified since the 1990s in india um and so Um, In many ways, the work on water is um, a continuation of that interest of looking at how liberalization is affecting inequality, but um, the the shift in focus is, is, as you mentioned, I focus uh, particularly on water and water infrastructure. The reason I chose water is that water is very unique in many ways. It cuts across um, every aspect of our life and society. Um, for example, it cut, uh, water is ne- ne- is a critical part of the economy. It's needed for agriculture, for industry, for basically almost every sector of, of the formal and informal economy. Water is also a basic, obviously, um, need for human life and human sustenance. So in some ways, water is something which is very um, illustrative. It tells us a lot about um, like, uh, how we organize our societies, the, the priorities we have, and um, basically what we value. Um, Secondly, water, in many ways, embodies history in a very particular kind of way. Um, Water and water infrastructure, the way it has been managed, um, appropriated, um, the approach to management, um, it sort of layers different periods of history in the context of India. So, for example, the approach to the management of water, the ways in which water infrastructure was built, um, first through agriculture um, and then um, through industrialization, uh, tells us a lot about the colonial state, the, uh, the 20th century developmental state, and then the post-liberalization state. So it's almost like the different historical periods are sort of uh, embodied and manifested in water infrastructure. Um, and then finally, and, and, and really importantly, um, the all of this is going to be very critical in the context of climate change as intensify, intensifying um, cycles of droughts and floods basically um, put real strains on water management and also make make it really critical for us to think about how we are effectively um, addressing uh, the governance of water. Um, So a lot of the questions of inequality and justice will will become much more acute and much more intense when you have um, scarcity of water, for example, when monsoons fail. And so the the book which I've written really is uh, focused on that. And it's looking at how... um, um, how how the governance of water um, is changed in the context of liberal liberalisation and what it means for an understanding of inequality. Most specifically, what I, um, the two things that I argue um, is uh, I argue that we, in order to really understand um, water, um, that we need to think of it in relationship to economic policies. Um, in many in many contexts, when we think about climate change, when we think about environmental issues. Um, Environmental issues tend to get sort of siloed um, in uh, institutionally and also sometimes academically from scholarship that looks at economic liberalization and looks at um, economic policy and um, the management of water and how we deal with the effects of climate change are going to be um, significantly impacted by the economic policies which governments are implementing so that's the first um a key issue and then secondly um and i'll i'll, I'll um, stop after saying this that the one of the key um contributions of my book is to argue that we really need to pay close attention to how institutions operate, that institutions uh, those, for example, that are responsible for governance over water don't just reflect inequality, but they, they can also produce inequality. And so if we want to think about um, a sustainable and equitable um, approach to water governance, we really have to pay close attention to how uh, attention to how institutions work.
0: Thank you. Uh, Thank you for that comprehensive response, Leela. Um, On a different note, uh, something to which you were alluding to earlier, uh, what I thoroughly enjoyed about your work is the attention to history. Um, You dwell at great length on the contestations between the extractive and the so-called restorative aspects of the colonial state, Uh, the debates between treating water as a commodity and envisioning it as a public good. Could you tell us about the role of the colonial state in the establishment of water bureaucracy in India?
1: Sure, um, I'd be happy to. Um, so, yes, yeah, so the reason um, I, I begin the book with a focus on colonialism is that um, there's a tendency for us to think about um, economic liberalization as basically sort of a new phenomena and the effects of uh, liberalization and inequality in the state as being kind of a break with the past. And part of what I've been interested in um uh, basically for for even in my, in my earlier work is, is to look at what is what is actually continuous you know what is what what represents historical continuity with past practices and what is new but liberalization. So, in the context of colonialism, uh, one of the things we we see in the Indian context is that the water bureaucracy was really forged by the colonial state. So many, uh, so many of the institutions, um, uh, in some cases, uh, uh, many of the ways in which we think about water in contemporary India. Um, and also um, in many cases, um, the institutions themselves were actually formed within the colonial state. Um, that's at one level. You see this also in the legal context um, that um, many of many contemporary water laws were actually instituted under British colonialism. So the impact of colonialism um, is very um, uh, critical. It has sort of long effects even into the, the present moment. Um, but at a deeper level, I, I think what I what I what you're pointing to when you talk about the extractive um, versus the um, restorative state um, is that um, part of what I what I show uh, through the historical part of the, the research is that um, there's a contestation uh, within the colonial state about the public good and the public works department, which is really the core of the of the water bureaucracy forged uh, under the British state. Uh, in a sense, uses the idea of the public good to basically um, develop its own institutional power. So the Public Works Department claims to represent the public good. um, And and it's, you know, obviously fraught because uh, uh, we're talking about a context of colonialism. But what's interesting is that that is um, in tension with other parts of the colonial state. Now, the part with the extractive state still um, frames the, the entire process is that even in the claims, of, um, even in the PDA, uh, public works department's claims to represent the public good of the common man of, of, of uh, uh, what they would call the native population, they often do so with an extractive um, argument. So, for example, one of the main arguments that they will make is that they will say that uh, they say that. Um, The state needs taxation, but you cannot have taxation if you don't have um, people who are able to pay. And so they talk about the need to invest in, for example, agriculture and irrigation as a way of allowing people to pay taxation. So that's where the extractive part kind of fuses with the public good. Now, this is really important because, in many ways, um, what constitutes the public good remains contested even in the post-colonial period. So, how does this? How does the public good, you know, link to state interests from in, um, in the contemporary period? How is that different from the colonial period? These are some of the um, questions which I um, try to unravel um, and tease out during the course of the book. Uh,
0: thank you for that. Uh, very thought-provoking response. I highly recommend this chapter on Public Works Department um, a public works department. Um, It was was quite an interesting read, Leela. Uh, So in keeping with the theme of the state character, my next question is on some of the contradictions you bring up early on in the book, vis-a-vis the post-colonial state of India. Uh, Instead of the commonplace interpretation of economic liberalization in in India, as most of you would know, happened in 1991, as a moment of decentralization and privatization, you claim that state power has been reconstituted and reconsolidated precisely through these uh, reforms. Uh, In fact, uh, the way you described uh, one of the moments in your book is um, when you talk about how there was a paradoxical emergence of the national planning for water, Alongside and as a product of India's opening up to global norms of reform, uh, could you tell us how these quote unquote reforms contradiction occurred in India and how do you think the water bureaucracy in southern India, uh, Chennai is your focus of study, undermines the narrative of Privatization and decentralization post 1991.
1: Sure. Yes. Um, so, in um, in many ways, you know, since the book is on water governance, this is a book about understanding the, the nature of the state in India, and also it has comparative implications. Um, so, the first, the, you know, as, as part of the context to just build on what we just talked about um, in the historical period, but one one thread of the the way the state works is that the the the, the sort of weight of a centralized state that is set up in the colonial period, um, that that legacy gets reconstituted um, in different periods of Indian history. And so um, scholars who have written about uh, economic reforms um, have either um, focused on sort of the implementation of decentralization, privatization. Um, and when 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 they have when there has been a sort of failure um, of decentralization or when privatization has not taken place, they have often viewed that as kind of a legacy of the of the older state, whether it's the 20th century state or the colonial state and that it's kind of like an almost like an Indian dysfunction that stops decentralization from happening. Um, and part of what I'm arguing is that that's really um in some ways um doesn't really get at what is actually happening with economic reforms. Part of what I show uh, through the analysis of, of the book is that the kind of centralization that is happening with uh, um, the state actually gains more power rather than decentralizing it to, lo- to local communities or, or local um, um, populations um, is actually built into ec- the economic reforms policies um, Itself, so it's not a it's not a dysfunction. It's not a it's not a sort of like divergence. It's actually it's actually built into the policies that claim to be um, promoting decentralization. But how this decentralization de- recentralization is happening um, is it's happening not necessarily just at the level of the central government, but it's happening at the local level through state, local state governments and their bureaucracies. So what that means is um, the book is arguing that in order to understand um, the dynamic of recentralization, we have to move away from the from a kind of spatial understanding of decentralization, where we assume that simply devolving authority to a lower level is the same as as, um, decentralization. In other words, um, you can give more uh, power to state governments, but that can actually re centralize authority uh, at, the, at the level of the state government rather than at the level of the central government. And so, um, so, for example, just to, uh, to, to take the case of Chennai, which is one of the exa- main main examples, uh, case studies of the book, um, when you look at how water, water reforms have uh, been implemented, again, um, the principles of water reforms um, have to do with uh, decentralization and privatization. But if you look at what that has actually meant on the ground, is it, it has simply meant a redistribution of institutional power. So rather than, for example, uh, Um, providing more authority and, and control to local communities, um, there's a shifting of which state governments, uh, which state uh, bureaucracies have authority. So, in the case of Chennai, and this is actually, even though I focus on Chennai, this is em- emblematic of other uh, other parts of India as well. There's a shift of power away from sort of smaller local um, local urban bodies, is what they, they would be called in India, and small towns and rural areas, towards um, re-centralizing power within city-based bureaucracies. Right. So in in other words, um, power is technically decentralized from from the central government to the state government, but it's re-centralized within certain state governmental bureaucracies so that um, local urban bodies, for example, and rural bureaucracies um, um, in in the case of Tamil Nadu, for example, in, in southern India, um, have have become very financially weak. They've actually lost authority, whereas authority has been re-centralized in city based um, uh, uh, water utilities and in in, um, in um, the city based bureaucracies that that oversee land and development and which therefore also have um, um, purview over sort of how water resources are used in urban areas. Mm-hmm. Um, well, sorry, maybe I'll pause there.
0: No, that's fantastic. Yeah, no, I just wanted to probe you more in the direction of uh, the issue of reforms in the Global South and wanted to widen that conversation to other parts of the world. Um, from what I know, uh, the issue of reforms in the Global South all often also anticipates um, certain international institutions, such as uh, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. And uh, I was wondering if you could tell us uh, what is the role of uh, such international institutions in promoting a certain vision of water governance in India?
1: Absolutely. So in the case of water in particular, um, the World Bank um, has always been one of the key global players and it continues to be. Um, so in the 1990s, um, privatization and decentralization were sort of pushed at a global level, and India was actually behind the curve in this, so India was actually not one of the countries at the forefront of implementing such policies. They tended to be implemented in other parts of the world, in uh, parts of Africa, parts of Latin America. Chile would have been one of the cases, for example, which was a prototype for, for privatization. Um, now, what, what happened in the 1990s is that privatization um, really failed in many ways. It failed uh, both in terms of uh, often in de- uh, uh, delivering water effectively. Uh, it failed in terms of not being affordable to many communities. And it also failed because it really provoked sort of global transnational movements against privatization. And you see this um, across uh, different countries. I mean, um, there have been scholars have written about sort of transnational movements, specifically in the in the uh, around the issue of water so what happens um after this um and you know uh, the, my book also looks at um, is based uh, um, well the chapter which looks at the world bank actually uses world bank documents to to sort of assess a lot of these so the world bank's own assessment was that um, it did not was not effective um, uh, it, uh, through uh, many of these uh, cases of privatization. And so what an- ends up happening is that the World Bank shifts its approach and it moves away um, from um, simply um, engaging in direct investment of infrastructure projects towards stressing state accountability and making sure that governments were in charge of any projects uh, which um, were funded by the World Bank. Um, and in in one of the interesting things is that you know, while you know while we often think of India as a case study, India was actually a very significant reason for for the broader global shift in World Bank thinking because of um the famous uh, Namada dam uh, agitation which I'm sure you're familiar with uh the World Bank was really um, um in many ways burned by that, by the controversy around that because it became really a, a a global um a globally recognized movement that had sort of wider implications and so part of what one of some of the internal reports of the world bank show is that they decide to sort of shift away from directly funding infrastructure um projects like the one at, at Nar- Nar- Narmada dam and they shift instead towards um um also um, sh- um what's uh, what's the word um, uh, funding a um Funding um, uh, uh, institutional reforms, so funding funding state government endeavors at re- reforming how they manage water, which is a more sort of indirect form of um, of um, of um, uh, f- financing. Now, why this is important is that you know there, there's a there's a tendency uh, in some of the scholarship, uh, especially the scholarship that focuses on ne- neoliberalism, to focus mainly on privatization and on private capital, and to sometimes underestimate the role of the state. And part of what the book is showing is that the case of water also has a broader sort of um, set of implications for how we think, how we analyze policies, because it uh, reflects what we could think of as the post-Washington consensus. So the Washington consensus is often what um, is referred, what what is sort of known as uh, sort of the neoliberal model, uh, uh, as academics would tend to call it, which basically focused on the retreat of the state, processes of privatization, etc in the post washington um, model basically washington consensus model basically the focus is more on governmental accountability and making sure that states um, and governments basically are effective so institutional reforms is one way of doing that now what this means in practice is that the the, the role of the state becomes intensified and that's one way in which as a, as we talked about earlier the the state in the, the role of the state itself becomes a sort of the foundation for for uh, different kinds of reforms. So rather than um, calling for the state to retreat, the state actually becomes the key mechanism for implementing reforms of various kinds. And so um, and so that has broad implications for how we think about uh, economic policies and in, in comparative contexts. Um, and finally, the water specific one last thing I would say is that one of the things that is specific to water and governance of water in particular is that um, investment in water infrastructure is not necessarily um, uh, it's not always um, profitable from the perspective of private companies. So, in the case of India, for example, it's uh, it's been difficult um, for the government for governments to get private. Uh, private investment in water infrastructure because it's very difficult to maintain. Um, you don't, you know, it's hard. It's harder than, uh, for example, a sector like telecom where it's easier to lay down cable uh, uh, or, um, uh, in terms of the kind of infrastructure. So, so the government in the Indian context, for example, um, still plays the critical driving role in investment and privatization. Does is is taking place, but it occurs under the state's purview, um, and in ways which are basically. Um, um either um sort of um effects of state policy or in ways that reinforce state power mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm, mm. that's a uh, that's a very nuanced um response to um, uh, the way, the homogeneous way in which we have continued interpreting uh, privatization and decentralization. Uh, thank you for that uh, thought-provoking response. Um, on a, a slightly similar note, I would like to continue thinking about the way you describe Indian bureaucracy, especially the hydraulic bureaucracy. Uh, you conceptualize bureaucracy quite unusually. I mean, unlike most people's uh, stereotype typing of Indian bureaucracy as, sta- as static and ponderous, you uh, talk about bureaucracy in India as a discursive space, where ethical, class, uh, and racial, and I was also thinking of gender dimension of a bureaucracy, and how um, these, um, these um, categories play a role in and, and condition decision-making in bureaucracy. So i was hoping if you could uh, talk a little bit about the implications of studying uh, bureaucracy in this highly localized and stratified way and uh, especially in the context of studying water governance
1: Sure you know so there so um, at the broadest level i think that you know, there's a lot of um, focus on governance and um, bureaucracy. Um, usually, um, bureaucracy and, and and often for for um, deserved reasons, um, is um, is. Viewed as a problem, right? So we talk, um, we talk about a lot of corruption. We talk about bureaucracies that are, that don't serve the, serve the public well. We talk about bureaucracies that are not effective, um, and oftentimes that is for good reason. But there's a way in which um, there's a despite all the talk about bureaucracies, there's not there's still. Um, limited research on how bureaucracies actually work uh, in comparative context. So kind of really sort of like fine grade understandings. Um, so is it the case that all bureaucrats are corrupt? Is it the case, like what, what makes bureaucracies um, so problematic, and so in, so I wanted to go beyond the narrative of corruption and beyond the narrative of, um, particularly in the Indian c- context. Um, um, as you, as I'm sure you know, that um, bureaucracy is really has always been vilified. You know, going back to sort of the um, the uh, discussions of red tape and the the sort of um, um, historical understandings of the bureaucracy as basically the thing that stops anything from anyone from innovating or anyone from prospering, etc. And um, and so. Part of what I do, so part of the, fo- the reason I studied the public works department is it allows me to take a very significant um, bureaucratic institution and study it over time, and that included um, um, actual fieldwork um, and sort of archival work at the public works department in, uh, in the state of Tamil Nadu in, in Chennai. And um, and what I found is a much more complicated picture. Um, so, for example, I found um, um, examples of bureaucrats who really were trying to um, do the right things when it came to wa- to um, effectively um, governing governing water, but they they were often trapped within larger structures. And a lot of times, the larger structures were produced by the economic policies which were which were coming from higher levels um, of the government. So, just to give you one example. Um, um, one of the examples I found in some of the uh, archival work I did I did was that I found that the water bureaucracy in Chennai that the internal documents of the bureau- of the one of the main bu- uh, bureaucracies showed that the bureaucrats wanted to basically have some kind of um, um, set of principles where the state would would not bring in investment that was water intensive. So Chennai and Tamil Nadu, is, as you know, um, as uh, is uh, um, is, uh, is uh, has um very significant periods of uh, water drought and water scarcity, which have been intensifying with climate change. Um, so there was well, a few years ago there was a, um this became actually globally infamous. The city of Chennai actually went dry, and they had to bring you know bring in water uh, with trade. So it's a very significant problem. And part of what the bureaucrats wanted to do was basically set limits on on, um, industries that were that needed really high levels of water because of the competing demands. So the bureaucrats are trying to manage um, uh, demands for water from agriculture, from industry, and then um, obviously from citizens and consumers. But what, what what happens in a situation like that is they're not able to get ever get that implemented because um, the economic policies that the state government are sort of driving are basically pro-investment and the state is trying to get in as much investment as it can. So there's a kind of structural contradiction Addiction that prevents the bureaucracy from from trying to effectively govern scarce water resources. Or to give you another example uh, from from the book, um, um, the there there, there, suppo- there were supposed to be laws uh, in Tamil Nadu which um, set limits on the conversion of agriculture to a new residential development but that was um routinely um basically sort of not um was basically flouted and and um and so um because of the um because of the sort of context of economic liberalization there's a premium on a premium premium on real estate development and building high um housing complexes particularly for middle class and upper middle class um, residents um, and the water bureaucracy was basically never never able to have any authority over um uh, that kind of uh, residential development, sort of uh, land development practice. And so what we see at an underlying level is that there's kind of like an institutional siloing where there's one bureau- one, one set of bureaucrats which are focused on land and one set of bureaucrats which are focused on water. Um, and because of the sort of um, context of economic policies, there's more, the, the land-based, bu- the land usage bureaucrats have more power because they have more, um, because they're sort of, um, in charge of sort of lucrative uh, real estate development, and so it gives you a sense of the structural constraints which don't allow bureaucrats to effectively govern water, and so that puts more pressure on water, causes more scarcity, and then you see the sort of um, end result is that um, citizens don't get then uh, don't get enough water at times of scarcity. So there's a long sort of story between what the bureaucrats are trying to do and then what happens if the public is really upset because they're not getting bureaucrats to respond to their needs so that's an example of sort of looking at the texture of bureaucracy and then there are also examples in which um, um you know which go against the stereotype of the corrupt bu- bureaucrat where you see examples of bu- bureaucrats who um who try to do ethical you know who try, try to have an ethical approach to their work but then they are in more sort of um they're in larger organizational um cultures that are more corrupt and so that which uh, uh, place constraints on them so part of part of the purpose of looking at the bureaucracy in this textured way is that uh if you if we're interested in gov- effective governance if we're interested in govern governance which um is more Equitable which takes the public good um more seriously we have to have a deeper understanding of what is going wrong and where it's go- going wrong mm-hmm. no
0: that thank you for that uh very powerful analysis um So I'd like to uh, move on to the connection between water and politics. Uh, We're talking about bureaucracy, state. I'd also like to think more creatively uh, about the connections between water and politics, Uh, because in a country such as India, water is not just an issue of livelihood and sustenance but also a very powerful political symbol. Uh, issues around water have invoked powerful political movements, and I'm thinking here of Mahar Tegra in the 1930s, the Kosi Dam movement throughout the 1960s to 1980s, uh, the Narmada Bachao movement that you referenced earlier in the 1980s and the 1990s, um, and the recent Dalit agitations in Gujarat in, I think it was in 2016, uh, what do you think are some of the important lessons from your work that could offer a restorative and even reparative vision of water policy in the country? Is it possible to think with water justice along with water governance?
1: Um, Yeah, I think that's a really great question. Um, So part of, uh, you know, when we started the conversation, I talked about um, very briefly about needing to understand that institutions don't just reflect inequality, they actually produce inequality. And so, if we're cons- if we're concerned with questions of water justice, we have to understand how it is different uh, bureaucratic institutions, in a sense, produce the inequalities that movements then have to arise in order to contest. And so, for me, um, questions of justice are basically intrinsic to questions of governance. I don't see them as kind of separate spaces. Um, and so that's the first thing. And then I, th- I think the second thing I would say is that we have some, you know, we have amazing scholarship, which looks at protest movements and looks at resistance movements. There's a lot of great scholarship on, uh, for example, NGOs and the role that NGOs play um, and local community organizations. But in many ways, you know, um, part of, um, I think part of my uh, presumption of pro- my argument is that um, in you. Given the ways in which modern society is organized, at least in the the contemporary period, um, we don't we we don't live without the state, right? The state exists. The state actually controls large portions um, um, of of, of um, resources. Uh, in the case of water, for example, water um, is a public good, which is, um, and the state is often um, when it's needed to has basically um, asserted its right rights. Sometimes legally um, through the courts to say that the state is actually in control over water. So, for movements that are interested in justice, um, it's critical that they also. Um, Get the uh, get the resources and understanding to think about how bureaucracies and how states either are producing or um, or changing social inequality, so that we can think of governance um, in connection to movements um, um, if we really want to uh, produce social transformation. So, so I think I would I would put those two together and say that we we understand that how movements arise, we understand the conflicts, we understand you know the the obstacles that they face but we also have to think about um the responsibility of governance so that um ins- we hold institutions accountable um for producing equity for producing the kinds of norms of justice that communities and and social movements want um and i'll say one final thing is that my own views i think this will become even more important with the with the crises produced by climate change because the you know the scale of um the scale of such crises are such that we will need governments to respond. You know that that not everything can be done um, by NGOs because of the scale of floods, for example, or the scale the scale um, of um, of uh, um, drought or water scarcity. So, if you think about just to shift outside of India for a second, if you think about, for example, the devastating floods in Pakistan, right? So there was. There was surprisingly little coverage in the U.S., which was troubling. Um, and they, they, you know, there were international organizations which moved in, but there was a point after which, you know, there's, there was only so much that even UN organizations could do, and it was really the the bureaucratic organizations within Pakistan that would have to deal with the, you know, the effects, uh, the health effects, the the nutritional effects, you know the. The long, the long-term sort of devastating effects of the floods that are that take place, uh, particularly in the poorer areas that it hit, were hit, you know, once the cameras are gone, and so it's critical for us to then think about these institutions which will be there when a crisis like that hits in the context of climate change. Um, rather than be, rather than waiting for the crisis when it's too late to um, make sure the institutions are working effectively and in with accountability. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh,
0: that's a great segue to my final question. Uh, so what fantastic scholarship should we anticipate from you? Uh, what are some of the directions you'd like to continue working on?
1: Uh, thanks for that question. So you know, so given you know the the continued um, effects of cl- climate change, I would I will still be writing. What questions of water and climate change and inequality, um, uh, both in the Indian context and also uh, from a comparative perspective, a global perspective. Um, and I'm also working on a book on knowledge and higher education and how a higher education in the United States fails, uh, particularly when it comes to change and equity.
0: Mm-hmm. That sounds fantastic. Uh, thank you, Professor Fernandez, for this very um, comprehensive interview. I highly recommend to my listeners reading Water Governance by Leela Fernandez, a book on the history and politics of water governance in India and much more. Um, thank you, Professor Fernandez.